Good morning, my name's Peter and I'll be reading the Bible this morning. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 17 and if you would like a Bible, put your hand up in the ushers, we'll bring you one. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. The punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I wrote for this purpose, to test your character to see if you are obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for you in the presence of Christ. I have done this so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. When I come to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, the Lord opened a door for me. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus, but I said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always puts us on display in Christ and through us spreads the aroma of knowledge of him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others an aroma of life leading to life. And who is competent for this? For we are not like the many who market God's message for profit. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. your Bibles open to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, after this talk there will be a question time as well so there's actually an opportunity uh, for you to ask questions about uh, today's passage or the last couple of weeks. Uh, always good to do question time and the question you're thinking of that you think oh I won't say it because everyone else is thinking the question so just shout it out at the end um, and uh, so we'll get stuck into question time at the end. It is easy to be discouraged about church sometimes, isn't it? And we look around our city, we look around social media and people just write church off. People laugh at Christians. They treat us like we're crackpots or conspiracy theorists or worse. And we feel this discouragement personally when we're at work and our thoughts and our opinions just jar and grate awkwardly against everyone else's. And we can even experience this discouragement personally at church when we pour ourselves out to help a Christian friend and it's not noticed or it's not appreciated. Or church is just hard work sometimes and it feels ordinary and not very exciting and we are tired and it's easy to be discouraged. Now the Apostle Paul had plenty to be discouraged about. But actually, as he kept lifting his eyes and lifting his mind and lifting his heart and his heart soul to Christ, 
as he let Christ fill his vision and fill his spirit, that in the midst of all of his struggles and challenges, he was able to never stop joyfully giving thanks. He never stopped serving. He never stopped giving. He never stopped preaching. He never gave up. Because he had experienced real, eternal comfort and joy and love from the perfect King, from our Saviour and Lord Jesus. And this is the hope and comfort that I want us all to share, even in the midst of discouragement, for us to have this hope that overcomes discouragement. And so as we look at our passage today, why don't we pray to the God of courage and comfort that he'd be with us. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be together as your people and to hear you speak to us in your word and to be reminded of your words of encouragement and comfort and strength to us that Jesus is Lord and he has conquered every power for your glory and for our good. And we pray that we would listen to his word and be changed by it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, the Bible says there is a time for everything. There is a season, there is an occasion for every activity under the sun. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us this. You know, it says there's a time to give birth and a time to die. There is a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, tear down, build, weep, laugh, keep, throw away, tear, sew together, love, hate, war, peace. There's a time for everything, it says. And what that means is as we ask ourselves moral and ethical questions, is it right to do this or that? The answer is we need to know the time. Now sure, we want one hard and fast rule for every and any situation. Always welcome people and accept them. Always seek happiness. Always be united. Always say nice things. We just want that to be the rule. But the Bible says actually there is a time when the right thing to do is mourn, when the right thing to do is tear something down, the right thing to do is rip something up and even go to war. We need wisdom to understand the time. And that's what we're seeing in the letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the church in Corinth. He's been talking about his ministry to them. They're questioning his leadership and his love and his care but in particular, he talks to them about his plans to travel and visit them and the reason he changed those plans. He wants them to know it was never a mistake, it was never a failure, it was intentional, it was because he understood the time. It wasn't the time to visit them because he would have had to say more difficult, painful truths to them and it wasn't the right time for that. He'd already spent 18 months with them he loved them dearly, he prayed for them constantly and he'd written to them some pretty hard-hitting truths out of love. They needed to take their relationship with God seriously. They needed to get their church community sorted out. They needed to more and more reflect and conform to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is so invested in the Corinthians, he is stressed and concerned for them. He is weighed down by this burden of a pastor's concern for God's church. But he's decided on his journey, it was time to wait. Time to give them space, give them the opportunity to take responsibility for themselves. He'll visit them at another time when he can say a different word. 
And it's the same for the church itself. In our passage today, Paul says to the Corinthians, that person that you've been disciplining, you've been punishing them, it's now time to forgive them. It's now time to comfort them, welcome them back, be restored. There was a time for the church to bring its judgment and discipline. That was right. But now is the time for forgiveness and encouragement. In verses 5 to 11, Paul is making reference to a troubling thing that had happened in the church, a person's sinfulness. They'd refused to change. They wouldn't repent. They needed to be rebuked and disciplined by the church. And I think it could be a reference back to his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can read that chapter in your own time where he challenged them with the problem of this man's sin but also with the problem of their tolerance. This man's sin is outrageous but he says to the church, you guys think it's fine, in fact you seem to be boasting about it. But so he says to them in today's passage, Verse 5, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. See, a church is a community that is to be so united, so invested in each other's lives, so connected to one another as the body of Christ, that when one suffers, we all suffer. And when one rejoices, we all rejoice. And when one is struggling with sin, then we all feel the sorrow and the grief of that. And we all have a responsibility to bear that burden and to urge them to rely on God's grace, to turn to Christ, to live out the forgiveness they already have in him and repent. And so Paul has written strong words out of concern for their godliness and he's now just heard back that they responded. And so had that sinful man. His hard and difficult words had actually had a healing, restoring effect. That's the work of God's Holy Spirit through his word in the community of the church. It might not be fun. It might actually be painful. It might cause sorrow and grief for a time. But it's actually good and beneficial. It is a blessing because it's how God grows us. And it's how he refines us and purifies us and strengthens us. This is what it means to be church. We need to be so invested in each other's lives that we know how their walk with Christ is going. We need to be so committed to Christ that we care how their walk with Christ is going. And we need to be so filled with the knowledge of Christ and the wisdom that comes from his Holy Spirit that we know when to speak and when to hold back. Which is why Paul writes in verses 6 and 7, this punishment that you've handed down by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him, otherwise he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. You have done what is right, he says, but now is not the time to go harder or keep punishing. The man is grieved that he did wrong and if you keep going, he'll be overwhelmed with excessive grief. So now is the time, bring forgiveness, love, comfort, encouragement, which is always the point of discipline. Now those of you who are parents here, you discipline your child, even though it's painful to them and to you, in order to make things right. The Bible says if you don't discipline, it means you don't care, you don't love them. 
That's why when our kids were little and when we needed to discipline our children, once the punishment had been handed down, we straight away would hug them, comfort them, tell them that we love them and pray with them. Because the easy thing to do is to discipline and then still be annoyed and speak harshly a few hours later and then the next day tell them off again. But how many times should you get punished for the one act, for the same mistake? Now the point of discipline is that they would grow in godliness and that reconciliation and restoration occurs. Same in church. You don't get to treat someone badly, continually, because of what they did ages ago. Remember, love keeps no record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians 13 told us that. Everyone loves that chapter. But that could be one of the most challenging verses in the whole Bible. Love has no memory. Love keeps no record. Love holds no lasting resentment of previous wrongs. Once, forgiven has been, once forgiveness has been granted. That's why Paul says, verse 8, Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Don't hold on to your anger. Don't hold on to your disappointment. Don't cling to your feeling wronged or let down or like you're a better person. Don't define yourself as a victim permanently. No, once it's dealt with. It's dealt with. And now we're friends. It's why he wrote this, in the first place, his previous letter, verses 9 and 10. I wrote for this purpose, to test your character, to see if you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ. Yes, Paul had written a letter that had caused pain and it had been hard and it was intensely difficult for him to write. Remember, he said, I wrote it with tears in my eyes and anguish in my heart. And he knows it caused them pain, but he needed them to prove their character. It was for their benefit in the presence of Christ because look at what he says in verse 11. So that... We may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. Now, Satan's schemes are to bring division in the church through lies and distrust. Christ is all about uniting his people in the truth and in his word. Satan is all about dividing people by getting them to distrust one another and distrust God's word through lies and selfish agendas. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says, he talks about the unity of the body of Christ, the unity of the church, and he says to them, speaking the truth in love, we grow together as we serve and work together. Which is interesting. We are called to be a growing church and that is how we will grow, by speaking the truth in love. But then he writes, and this should come up on the screen, Ephesians 4, verse 25. He says, Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his own neighbour, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. 
You see that? The devil has an opportunity when we stay angry with each other or when we lie and don't speak the truth to each other, when we let our anger lead us into sin. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, don't give Satan an opportunity. It's time now, having done the hard yards of discipline, hard work, it was painful. Now you get to enjoy the time of peace and joy and love restored to one another. Now's the time of reconciliation. And then we come to verses 12 and 13, which at first seem pretty randomly plonked in the middle of this passage. It's almost like he got distracted. He's talking about the church, forgive that man. And then he says, verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the Lord opened a door for me, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus. Instead, I said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia. Now, he's gone to Troas, he's having a faithful and productive gospel ministry, the Lord's opened a door for him, but he has no rest in his spirit, he's restless and concerned because he couldn't find Titus, so he moves to Macedonia. And we think, well, thanks for telling us that, what did you have for lunch? And what was the weather like? And it just seems random. But here's the thing, why did he have no rest in Troas? Because he's looking for Titus. Why does that matter? Because he'd sent Titus to the Corinthians with his hard and painful letter. And he was waiting to hear back. He's waiting to hear, how are they going? How are they? How have they responded? But he still hasn't heard. He couldn't find Titus. As far as Paul knew, the latest report he had was of Corinthian issues regarding sin, worldliness, division in the church. So no wonder he's restless and distracted because he loved them deeply. He feels the disappointment He's weighed down by the discouragement. He's burdened by fear and concern. Now, the good news is when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we learn there that he did meet up with Titus in Macedonia and he hears the most encouraging news about the Corinthians. We'll get there in a few weeks. But his point here in chapter 2 is that even as he's going about doing ministry and he doesn't have the answer yet to how the Corinthians are going, He is able to hold on to courage because he moves from his problems to his God. Even as he comes back from a terrible mission trip in Asia that was filled with hardship and suffering, he thought he was going to die. Even as he experiences restlessness out of concern for the Corinthians, are they going to collapse? What is happening? He hasn't heard how they're going. He has to change his plans according to the time. He's experienced his own weakness and limitations. In the midst of all that, verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Wow. No matter what happens, says Paul, no matter what discouragement I am bombarded with, no matter what is going on, no matter how trying the circumstances are, It might not look like it, it might not feel like it, but God is always leading us and he is always leading us in Christ's triumphal procession. Paul had so much to be discouraged about. He had a whole mountain of things that felt like they were going wrong. So many times it would have been easy for him to give up or give in or throw his hands in the air and say, I'm over this, you guys aren't worth the pain. His life and his ministry was very brutally difficult 
and desperately lonely. Even his Christian friends looked at him like a failure and were dismissing him. He was heartbroken, but he still thanked God because even in all of this, he realises God is leading him in a triumphal procession, in the victory of the cross, in the triumph of dying to self, in the victory of Christ who suffered out of love for sinners and was raised back to life. Thanks be to God, says Paul. What is he thankful for? He's thankful for the personal joy of belonging to Christ's army, the personal privilege of sharing Christ's blessings and the power of experiencing Christ's victory over death. And that's comfort right there, no matter what you're going through. Christians, we are part of Christ's victory. We are the expression. We are the public parade of his triumph. The church gathered like this, proclaiming the gospel together, is Christ's victory tour. Now just imagine a mighty triumphant army. Maybe it's the Roman army marching with all their kind of glittering armour and their shields and their, their spears and they're in perfect kind of unison marching. It's impressive. There's just kind of hundreds of thousands of them. And they're marching with Caesar at the head into a city that they just smashed. And on the side of the road, in the rubble, one of the defeated foes calls out and says, you're not that impressive. You're not that strong. You're weak and your leader is useless. How would those soldiers feel? How concerned would those soldiers be? There's a vast victorious army marching behind an all-powerful king through a territory he's just conquered and a feeble defeated voice cries out you don't look like much to me that army's just going to laugh what are you talking about can't you see our king has won we've already won that is Paul's response to hardship in the world and to people saying we're not that impressed by you Paul and he's like well we've conquered and that ought to be our. Sometimes as the church, we walk through the world as if we're embarrassed and ashamed and we're kind of like, yeah, we are pretty lame and feeble. And God's like, what do you mean? You are my victory procession. It changes your whole attitude to ministry and church. See, we don't serve in ministry and church and we're all called to serve in church. But we don't do it because hopefully, if we get it right, God will win if we pray hard enough, if we do enough good works, if we try really hard, then good might defeat evil. Our sins might be taken away. We might get to go to heaven. No, God has already won. Christ has already conquered. Through the cross, he's already completely triumphed over sin and Satan and death and hell. And now he leads us in triumphal procession. Even though the world in its stubborn blindness cannot see this truth, in fact, they will not see it. They refuse to see it. It's true and Paul is not discouraged. He knows his hard times are in fact Christ's triumphal procession because they bring comfort and salvation to others through the gospel and this is the deep eternal confidence of being a Christian no matter if we trip over or stumble if we look foolish to the world, if we are rejected or teased, if everything goes wrong, if society bans church or they make a law against Christianity, 
if they laugh at us or exclude us or attack us or take away every possession we have, whatever, we win. Because in Christ we already have. Because God is at work saving souls for eternity. He has defeated death, he's defeated hell and he's promised resurrection and eternal life. Because did you notice in this, Paul says that through him, God is manifesting the aroma of of what? We might expect him to say the aroma of heaven or the aroma of Christ or the aroma of grace. But he says it's the aroma of knowledge. Christian ministry and proclamation is manifesting the aroma of the knowledge of Christ in every place. That's what you should be able to smell when you hang out around Christians. When you come to church, this is what the knowledge of Christ is like. It's the smell of trust and confidence. It's the aroma of thankfulness in God's sovereign power to save and comfort. It is the fragrance of assurance and peace in the victory of the cross. It's the knowledge of forgiveness of sins and the free gift of salvation. That's what you should be able to smell. I mean, who doesn't like the smell of freshly baking bread? Smells so good. Or frying bacon. Uh, or a barbecue, slow-cooked meat or something like that. Maybe for you it's freshly cut grass or flowers. One of my kids said the other day when we were filling up, they said, oh, I love the smell of petrol. I'm not sure what that says. <laughs> but I'm um, not sure about that one. It doesn't really kind of fit in the list. Um, but as Christians go about the world preaching the gospel of Christ... And living the gospel of Christ, we spread the most amazing aroma of all, the impression, the experience, the sense of how good it is to know and love Christ. But who experiences this aroma? Well, first and foremost, it's God. Have a look at verse 15. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Notice there, the one who is experiencing the aroma is in fact God. To God, we are the pleasing fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Christian fellowship, Christian preaching, our witness, our sharing, our testimony, our hardship, our suffering, our life, our community, our serving, all of these reflect Christ, project Christ, convey Christ to God and to the world. And if you know anything about Christ, then you would know how much delight it gives God to look at us and see us becoming more and more like his beloved son. He loves to see us more and more conforming to Jesus and conveying to the world the perfect majesty of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. God loves it. A pleasing aroma to him. Now here's the problem. Not everyone agrees with him. Not everyone likes this aroma. Not everyone appreciates it. Not everyone wants it. If we are the aroma of Christ and the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ, then we should be, expect to be received in the world the same way Christ himself was. And that's the whole point. Christians are called to stand out and be noticed. It's not much of a fragrance if you can't smell it. It's not much of an aroma if it smells like everything else around. We are called to stand out and be distinctive, which is a little intimidating for us, isn't it? Because actually our instinct is, can't we just blend in and conform? 
We like the idea of fitting into society, being accepted, not offending anyone, belonging to the world. There's another part of us that likes the idea of standing out and being distinctive, but only if it's because we're impressive and awesome and everyone loves us. Either way, both of those instincts say we want the world to love us, but as Christians, we have something infinitely more valuable. We're loved by God. We're accepted by God. We belong to God. We fit right in to his perfect, heavenly, eternal kingdom. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself calls his disciples to be salt and light at a city on a hill. He says, stand out as distinctive, that you can't miss it, the salt, the light, the city up there on a hill, unmissable, distinctive. And he says, stand out, be distinctive, and you are blessed when you're persecuted. That's what he's calling his disciples to, to live such lives, to do such good works, to proclaim such a message that it gives glory to God and others persecute us. Because that's the effect of the gospel. Have a look at verse 16. To some, we are an aroma of death leading to death. But to others, an aroma of life leading to life. Who is adequate for these things? As we proclaim and live the gospel, as we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, that all sinners are desperately sinful and heading for hell, but Jesus is our rescuer, people will be offended. In fact, it's like we are a bad smell. It's like we are the stench of death. The gospel wants to make them gag because they can smell on us. You know what they can smell? God, the Lord Jesus. And because they hate him and reject the gospel, it leads to death. It's this odour that makes them say no and so that leads to death. To others though, as we proclaim the gospel, live the gospel, we are the sweet aroma of life to them. Why? Because they can smell on us God and the Lord Jesus. And as they come closer and believe this message, they receive life. It's the gospel that causes these two responses. It's Jesus. It's the cross. There's no other way. And I know that we have this well-meaning instinct to sugarcoat the gospel. What if we tried to make it more palatable and attractive? What if we tried to make it more appealing to the world? What if we packaged it better? What if we made it more relevant, made it more interesting? What if we modified it so it answers modern questions? What if we make it so it's not quite so offensive? What if we take out or just avoid the parts people don't like? We want to make church more acceptable. We want Christian teaching to be more believable. We want our evangelism to be more attractive. It's a well-meaning problem, but all that ever happens is the saving power of the gospel, the cross of Christ to save sinners, you, you remove it or you cover it over with a bit of worldliness. And the more relevant we are to the world, then the less the world needs us because we're exactly the same as them. And it actually, when you dig deep, it says we put more confidence in the world's instinct and ability to find the truth than we do in God's ability to convey the truth and tell us what we need to hear. No, we believe God. What really matters is how we smell to God. What matters is that we are the aroma of Christ and we need to be aware 
that though it is pleasing to God, to some that aroma will be offensive, it will be disgusting. Which is why Paul finishes with this reminder in verse 17, where he says, For we do not market the word of God for profit like so many. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. That's ministry. We don't market the word of God. Our job is not to spin it. We don't need to use advertising techniques to hide the bad bits and promote the good. We don't need to lie like politicians, like ads, like companies. We're not in it for profit. We're not in it for financial gain. We don't need to spin the gospel when it is the power of God for salvation and it is the aroma of glory to God in Christ. On the contrary, like Paul, we know discipleship comes at a cost. Devotion to Christ comes at a cost, but it is one worth paying. That we would live for the one who died for us and rose to give us eternal life. In a moment I'm going to pray, but in the meantime, are there any questions that people might have? Uh, so here's your chance to ask questions about today's passage um, and yep, wh whatever it might be uh, or about previous passages the last couple of weeks. Yes, we have a question here. That's, that from your heart. that's an excellent question. The question is um, forgiveness on the basis of repentance is one thing, but what if someone hasn't repented? What if it's an ongoing situation? Um, very quickly, I'd say there are two forms of forgiveness. There is forgiveness where the person has repented, admitted that they are wrong, been willing to put themselves um, humbly before you and say, I did wrong, I will change, I am sorry. That's real repentance. Forgiveness is when, at your own expense, not theirs, forgiveness isn't, right, now go buy me something expensive or do something awesome. Forgiveness is to say, well, I'm going to bear the cost of saying you're forgiven. But in repentance, we are reconciled and the relationship is right, you can move on. There is another form of forgiveness I think the Bible talks about, which is where the person hasn't even said they're sorry or they've repented. Um, and uh, and when, in terms of how often should you forgive, uh, the disciples say, how many times? Uh, and Jesus says, 70 times 7, keep going. An infinite number by an infinite number. Keep forgiving, keep forgiving, keep forgiving. Why not rather be wronged, is what he says. So we kind of keep score and we think, I was happy to unconditionally forgive you then, but it's at 15 times now, that's my limit, see you later. That means you didn't really forgive them for the 14 things. It says, look, I'll let you go with that one, but I'm storing it up. Because real forgiveness looks like, well, this is the first time. How are we going to fix this up? Repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. So we need to, it is, forgiveness is costly. We think forgiveness is easy. Um, and God's like, well, I've written you a massive book on how forgiveness works and it cost me my son. Forgiveness is very difficult to get right. It is, it is massively costly. So it is a bigger thing than we realise to offer forgiveness. But I think, what about those people who they refuse to say sorry? They refuse to change. They won't even admit they're doing anything wrong. What do we do with them? I don't think the Bible says, now with them you're allowed to harbour bitterness and do whatever you like and treat them that... Um, what, you, you can't ever get real reconciliation with that person. You can't ever give them this form of forgiveness where you are right once again. But I think what you can do is offer them that limited forgiveness of I'm not going to treat you as you deserve. And, and there is a book written by uh, a Jewish woman, became a Christian, and she wrote a book called Forgiving Hitler. He is not a man who said sorry, he couldn't because he's dead. 
He had done horrific things to her family, so many of them had died. She had suffered and she went, you know what, I'm not going to be defined by this, I am going to... She wrote a book on forgiving Hitler. That, I think, is this form of forgiveness. It's not this one. It is hard, we've got to work on it together, we've got to keep looking to Christ um, and there's lots more to be said, but it's an excellent question and I really appreciate us being stimulated to think through what it looks like. Yes, other questions? should keep the first answer short because I think people think, if I ask a question, is he going to go on a rant like that again? Kind of. Yeah, the microphone's a good idea. Uh, hi, Adrian. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I have a question around some of the things that you mentioned towards the end of your sermon around the gospel and relevance. Mm. Um, I'm under- trying to understand how you, I guess, preach the gospel um, in a way, they acknowledge us, yes, that it's the aroma of death to people who are perishing. Um, however, isn't the gospel also something that is deeply relevant because it is speaking to people where they're at? Um, in terms of, say, how we communicate the gospel, how it's presented, I understand, you know, when we do it just for that sake, just to attract people's attention. But what about when you're actually trying to communicate the gospel in a way that is lovingly answering the questions that they have and the way in which you do that is communicating it in a way that makes sense to them? That's an excellent question. In fact, it's an excellent point. I think you've kind of answered it better than I can. Um, But I think uh, the, the question is to do with that kind of sense of relevance. And I think the way you've expressed it is really helpful. It's not our job to make the gospel relevant where we get, here's a person who thinks this about life and the world, and here's the gospel, let's bring it to them, get it into their world, and maybe they'll be able to jump over the gap. Uh, What we're doing when we're communicating the gospel is we're showing this person the gospel is relevant. We need to bring them to the truth. We don't change the truth to conform around them. We're working to communicate them to conform around the truth. The reality is the gospel is the most relevant thing that's ever been said. There is a solution to death. There's a solution to every form of suffering there is in the world. There is a glorious future. Everything you could ever want. You want connection. You want family. You want relationship. You want significance. All of that is found in Jesus. Why are you looking anywhere else? The gospel is the most relevant thing ever. The danger is when we think people want significance and purpose, okay, so what do they want? What do they need? Let's uh, come here and say, well, look, Jesus can help you with that one. Jesus can help you with that one. Your relationship needs to improve. Jesus can help you with that. The problem is the direction is all wrong. You are a sinner and you're wrong with your God and he is going to judge you. First things first, you need to come and get right with the king. And you know what will come out of that? You know what, a, what will result from that? It'll change your life. It'll change your view on ethics and morality and relationships. It'll change your view on the future. So if, rather than us changing the gospel and modifying it because we're embarrassed by it, we need to keep showing people just how relevant it is. So I think you've expressed that really well. And it's an excellent point that I think is helpful to point, to point, point out in here. Um, even though Paul is saying something really kind of stark, aroma of death, um, uh, also, the Bible says, talks about being gentle and winsome and, um, yeah, so, great point. Really appreciate that. Maybe one more question? There is one here, yep. Sorry about that. Um, I was just thinking about forgiveness and where the Bible talks about exclusion, you know, going to someone and speaking to them. And is that more where someone is sinning against the gospel? 
versus a person. They are both examples in the Bible. So what's interesting is that Christians are so connected to one another that the, a sin against the gospel is a sin against us. Um, and so we have a responsibility to take care of that. You know that, that amazing promise Jesus makes, when two of, or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am with you. We love that verse. We love the idea. We know, you know what? Jesus is here. You know what he's talking about in that passage? This is the problem of taking verses out of context. He says, when you need to judge another believer and discipline them and punish them, when you guys have decided that they need to stop doing what they're doing and you go to rebuke them and even shut them out of the fellowship, I'm with you. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus says, I love my fellowship, I want you to love one another and there are times when what that looks like is exclusion. Um, but for the purpose of forgiveness and re reconciliation, which is why Paul in this passage, back in 1 Corinthians, he said, um, he said in 1 Corinthians 5, if you do this, you need to do this exclusion and discipline. I am with you in spirit, he says. Just as Jesus is with us when we need... Paul says, I am with you, Corinthians. I'm with you. Here in 2 Corinthians, he says, if you forgive, I forgive. I am with you. We're so joined in this. But for us as Christians, if, when we are wronged, um, then the right thing for us to do is to talk to them to seek reconciliation. When someone is sinning in church, you know what the right thing to do is? To talk to them and say... I actually think you need to look to Jesus and I think this behaviour is inconsistent with the gospel and you know what Jesus says, if they don't listen to that, take two or three witnesses who say, you know what, I'm not on my own on this one, we think this is serious. If they won't listen to that, the whole church says to them, this is a big deal and then Paul says, have nothing to do with them. But we're trying to offer forgiveness by calling them to repentance. But it is a, it's a church-wide responsibility on that one. And this is where we need to make sure that we know people well enough that we know what's going on in their walk with Christ. And we're not just going on the basis of rumours that we think, oh, I heard something, something, something. And then what we do is treat them badly, but it's never going to seek reconciliation. It's not loving. We need to know them. We need to care enough about them to say, I'm going to say the hard word. Often we think the best way to deal with sin in the church is to go tell the minister. Um, why are you telling me? Because you're thinking, I want to feel better about myself. No, that's a bit cynical, isn't it? Kind of, what you need to do is talk to them. Are you concerned for them? Are you praying for them? Do you love them? You go talk to them and say, I love you. Can I help you with this? As opposed to dob on them and think someone else's problem. So this is it's a massive challenge for us as a, as, a, as a church to think how do we be so invested in each other. And this is why it's interesting that Paul, I started with the whole time thing, because Paul is not just a rebuke machine that he just gets up there and says, feel bad because you're not good enough for Jesus. No, he says there is a time when you've got to do that and there is a time when he just wants to lay the love on thick. You are loved, you are precious, you are saved, you're forgiven, you're washed, you're pure. And there is a time when we've got to do this. And knowing that time, that's wisdom, isn't it? And when you figure it out, come tell me. So I'd love to be able to do that one. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time together in your word and thank you for this beautiful word that we have triumphed because Jesus has defeated everything for us, defeated death and he's defeated our sin and our failure and our guilt crushed on the cross. And thank you, Father, that our, our time in hell, that we, we should have been there for eternity. Jesus has smashed it. And so all we have is your love and your acceptance and eternal life. 
Help us, Father, to be people who offer that love to one another and to the world. Please work in us despite discouragement. Help us to have the sure and certain hope and to glorify you in everything. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.